No, but um, I mean, I haven't actually caught up with what's happened over maybe the past six or so days in Peru because I know that you know there was uh, Pedro Castillo was had no you know no confidence in the Congress and uh, there was a clause in the Constitution because of you know it's a right wing the Fujimori Constitution and he kind of used Boluarte. that Fujimori's Peru um, Bolivia nope. What? Lena was correct. Oh, really? <laughs> Boarte, oh the yeah. current president, is the vice president. The Constitution was oh, written during the okay. period of Al. Yeah, Albert. yeah. Yeah, my bad. But, my bad. but in that Constitution, they wanted to like create a little section that if there was, um, you know, like a left wing Congress and there was a right wing president, that the president then could get rid of the left wing Congress. But then, you know, in this case, the right wing Congress has been stopping uh, uh, Pedro Castillo the, at every single turn and he's like oh i don't have confidence in this also you to to do to suspend the congress you can't be doing it with force or something like that and so that was another reason why he appeared alone in this video which from all the points that i can see means that it wasn't illegal but then the judge uh put him in jail for 18 months for doing this illegal thing but then the last thing I saw was that the military changed their position or whatever. Is that yeah? I'm, it so, seems there was a statement from a general, but I don't know if it's the whole military or just like one general expressing his concern. Yeah. So like, I I don't really I haven't focused much on the legality or illegality of any of the moves because law is fake. But like, mm-hmm. um, as we can tell, as of what but, I just explained, it is fake. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, because the thing is, it's like. His attempt to dissolve Congress seemed perhaps a bit poorly thought out, although, but it comes from a position of, you know, desperation because over the last year and a half, he's been trying to implement the agenda that he was voted into office to implement. Um, and aside from a few small things eating away at the edges, and he did some cool, like, cultural stuff, like bringing in more uh, indigenous language. Uh, stuff I know like but like actually like change I think they changed the rules so that you can actually like you don't have to speak only Spanish like on mm-hmm. the, I, I'm not 100% sure but I I because I, this is like remembering stuff from about a year ago but because the thing with with Castillo is that like part of the shock of him getting elected president is that like he's a school teacher <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. it's not that he's, he's not like he's been a career politician so uh, I think part of what has exacerbated the difficulties for him, the source of which, of course, are the intransigence of the Fujimoristas who have complete control over Congress and attempted to block him from doing literally anything, um, is his inexperience. I think that 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 combined with their basically lawfare war on his agenda made it impossible for him to do anything and put him into this really difficult situation where they were going to use like basically legal provisions to remove him from office. And so in an attempt to stop that, he basically tried to use this last ditch effort that because he didn't have the backing of any of the armed forces just didn't work. I got a lot of the information that I said out of a Ben Norton interview with an activist who is on the ground. And so a lot of almost everything that I said is kind of based on what was said there, plus a couple other pieces from other places. Yeah, it's been interesting to compare what's been happening to him to what's been happening to Christina Kirchner from Argentina. And it seems like they're both facing like the twin powers of extremely 
conservative, you know, regressive legislatures, but also critically their judiciaries in their country have been packed with, uh, you know, extremely conservative, outright fascist, however you want to categorize them, uh, kinds of figures for a long time. And because thanks to U.S. influence, a lot of those countries have their judiciaries set up much like ours, it, they are as slow moving as ours. A lot of those judges and, and folks from that sector are serving in lifetime positions. And you have like Dina Boluarte, who just uh, acceded to power in, in Peru. Uh, I believe the second in command that she just chose was also a former prosecutor like herself. So you see a lot of people getting pulled up from the judiciary into the executive during these kinds of movements. Yeah. And I mean, we're seeing... I think we're seeing exemplified in the demands of of the people of Peru who have been fighting back against the coup, like what folks are focusing on. Because over the last 18 months, it's not just been the right wing attacking mm-hmm. Castillo. Then Castillo also made several moves to try and like appease the right wing by removing left wing members of his cabinet, which was one of the things that actually caused the party Peru Libre mm-hmm. uh, to repudiate him. So like, most of what I've seen, there have been demands for, for Castillo to be released, of course. But the primary stuff that I've been seeing has mostly been like, we need to disband Congress, get mm-hmm. rid of this coup government that none of us voted for, and have a constituent assembly to write a new constitution to replace the fascist one from the uh, Fujimora era. And, right, right. And so, like, and that's the stuff that I heard echoed in that um, communique that was released by that Peruvian general where he basically was like, uh, we need to stop all you know uh, attacks on the people who are just peacefully protesting, and clearly the people are demanding that we close Congress and have a new and have new elections, and so right. we need to well, do that. Well, they've actually been demanding that since before Pedro Castillo, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, went through and tried to dissolve Congress. So as far as you know, depending on how you look at it, but if you look at it from more of the, you know, communist perspective, I'd say that, you know, the President Castillo was just listening to the demands of the people in the uh, attempt to dissolve Congress, uh, which, again, I think, does, and I'm not an expert on this, but it doesn't seem as illegal as a lot of the right-wing press is uh, trying to make it out to be. But that's not really, that. I don't, I don't know if we can really get too deep into that right here. It's just super interesting because I think the folks in Peru know that these demands are absolutely possible to be made good because in one form or another, this kind of stuff is happening all across South America. Like Chile just got rid of their old constitution. And I well, mean, but, but, I, I know. The attempt to replace it didn't work. Yeah, I know. But um, and then also like you, you saw the return of uh, Luis Arce in Bolivia after Evo Morales was ousted. And I mean, Lula has an incipient return to power in Brazil. So it's like there are gears turning in both directions right now all across the continent. I do think it's telling to see, because I think I've seen people try and portray it. Oh, this isn't a right wing coup. It's the vice president taking over as if it's like, well, but I mean, look at the response. Like we've seen 25 people, like Peruvians have been murdered since the coup. And if we look at like where this is happening, it's, it's really like disparate as far as I can tell. And I, this could be wrong. I could, I could have changed since now, but the last time I checked, it really looked like the vast majority of the deaths have been in 
like rural, more rural areas, like not around mm-hmm. like the capital because, and, and, and it's been largely in areas that are like predominantly indigenous, which I think again points to another big part of the character of this coup and the resistance of the Peruvian people because that's been largely led from what I can tell by like the indigenous groups who, as you mm-hmm. said, Lena, like have been making these sorts of demands since even before like Castillo was elected. Well, what I want to know is whatever happened to that nine-binding resolution passed by the OAS that they <laughs> back Pedro Castillo? Because I thought that was, <laughs> I thought they were going to stick by that. Yeah, uh, but I mean, anyways, solidarity with the people. Of, yeah, yeah, a solidarity with the people of Peru in their struggle against the undemocratic coup against their president, and I hope that that that. The sign that we got this weekend was like at least some parts of the military starting to support the people mm-hmm. instead of the government. I really hope we start seeing more of that because otherwise things could get uh, even more dark than they already have been. Absolutely. Well, as long as we're talking about solidarity, I should probably intro the show. <laughs> everybody your number one labor podcast my name is john i'm dan and i am lena and we are entirely listener supported so thank you so much for any money you might be giving us on patreon it goes a really long way if you're not in the discord already hop in there it's a great place to hang out with the hosts and talk about the show and if you are a patron and you don't have stickers yet just message us on patreon if you want to help the show a little bit more you can leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or anywhere that you think it will help um, I'm not prepared with a joke today, but we're going to talk about <laughs> case, the case New Holland strike continuing, workers being out on the picket line for eight months. Uh, this is a strike that started all the way back in May where we saw 1,100 UAW workers at Case New Holland in Racine, Wisconsin, and Burlington, Iowa, who went on strike for a new contract that would reverse years of concessions and build off the success of their brothers and sisters who struck at John Deere in 2021. And now... Eight months down the line, the workers have remained out there on the picket line, and the two sides, unfortunately, appear completely deadlocked. Yeah. So it's been a minute since we checked in with the case workers, and I really just wanted to check in, basically, with the status of the strike and how it's been going. Because as you said, you know they've, they've been on the line since May. And just to refresh folks' memories... The workers at Case New Holland, which is a company that primarily makes like agricultural heavy equipment, so like combine harvesters, front end loaders, and all the sorts of things that you would need to do uh, modern mechanized farming. Uh, and and the workers there are fighting for fair raises, better overtime pay, improved vacation and retirement benefits. But the company is basically just refusing to offer them anything reasonable and is just trying to get by by using scabs to replace their labor. Uh, they, the company presented the workers with a, you know, last best and final offer in September, but the offer was so bad that the leadership of the two UAW unions didn't even bother to bring it to the membership for a vote because they're just like, we know everyone's going to vote this down. This would be a huge waste of time. And it would look bad if we even gave it this, the, the, the small amount of apparent approval of even just bringing it for a vote. 
Strong move from the leadership there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's not uh, super often that we see that move, uh, yeah. unfortunately, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in response to that, the company has been trying to break unity of the workers by putting up billboards in the areas around Burlington and Racine, claiming that the union leadership is refusing to bring a good offer to the workers. <laughs> Which are just like, these guys can literally just show your offer to the work like yeah they're not idiots (laughs) well it's also like just because we're not bringing it to them for a vote it doesn't mean that you can't show it to them if they ask what it was that's ridiculous like also like and i'm sure that they have because i mean the the details of that are not you know hidden Mm -hmm. but uh we're not seeing a big move by the rank and file to be like give us a chance to vote for the shitty tentative agreement yeah right right exactly and so like uh, Yassine Mahdi, who's the president of Racine, UAW Local 180, uh, told the uh, trade journal Equipment World, quote, the offer that they have proposed to us is so minute or little that who wants to go and work under those conditions? I mean, with inflation being what it is, with the job market up in a way it is, I don't think anybody has anything to lose, at least not my members from the standpoint of going back to work under a substandard agreement. That would be crazy. End quote. <laughs> Hell yeah, absolutely nailed it. And I mean, he didn't stop there. He also pointed out that over the past eight months, the company has spent so much money trying to break the union that they could have already paid for the union strike demands at by this point. And, and Case New Holland has brought in well over half a billion dollars in profits this year. That's $500 million. <laughs> yeah. Um, and meanwhile, unfortunately, the scabs that the company is bringing in have repeatedly uh, taken aggressive action against the striking workers. Uh, former uh, Case New Holland employee Aaron Kennelly, who is an engineer who actually basically quit his job in solidarity with the striking workers, uh, he has reported several incidents of scabs ramming their vehicles through picket lines, attempting to and occasionally actually hitting striking workers. And Shockingly, there has not been a major police investigation or any sort of protection provided to the strikers. Shockingly, yeah. in air quotes. Yeah, shockingly, in the most sarcastic tone I can possibly do. <laughs> yeah, well, um, and I mean, like, we have data here from the workers that outlines exactly, like, why this offer was so pathetic. Because, like, Nick Guernsey, who's the president of the Burlington, Iowa, Local 807, said that while the company's offer increased their wage to 5.3% per year, the company refused to budge on issues like health care and workers' schedules. So, I mean, like, again, this is one of those things where it's like, it's not just about the wage, it's about benefits, it's about work place control and then many of the workers have even been forced into schedules of four 10-hour days with two hours of overtime each day which forces them to work 12-hour shifts and so speaking with local tv news station kwqc guernsey said quote some people don't realize what we're fighting for they think maybe hey we're being a little greedy it's not being greedy we're trying to get fair and it i mean that's absolutely true and also it's not only dishonest, but it like wounds me when they're, the media tr- or anybody tries to characterize workers who are fighting for a better wage as greedy. It's like, I can point you to the greedy people, man. They're so easy to find. Like <laughs> they're, on the, they're on the other side of the negotiating table. Exactly, exactly. right. Yeah, they all have time. fancy offices with their name on the door. They could, <laughs> how much easier could they be to find? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, why is it that the capitalists who are trying to squeeze more profit out of the labor of the people consider not considered the greedy ones? Yeah, and and I mean that 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 issue of scheduling is something that we come up that comes up so often, and I feel like gets such 
gets brushed off so often whenever it's reported in the media. They're like, oh, they want scheduling changes, as if this is like an imposition. But then when you actually go look at it, it's like, okay, they're forcing the workers to do 12-hour shifts. I think most people would prefer not to do 12-hour fucking shifts. And it's not as if this is at, you know, a hospital. Again, not that nurses should be forced to work 12-hour shifts, but at least in that situation, you'd be like, well, it's an emergency, and we have to do it every once in a while, and it's a pandemic or whatever. Like, they're building agricultural equipment, which is important, but not, therefore, we must make all the workers worth 12-hour shifts. Like, they Mm -hmm. deserve a normal quality of life and being able to see their families just like everybody else. Yeah, I can't imagine doing a 12-hour shift. As soon as I get over 5 or 6 hours, I can de- I have there's like a tangible thing in my brain that starts to like mm-hmm. haze everything out a little bit. If I'm working an 8-hour shift, the last 2 hours are always less productive than than the other ones. Yeah. So, and so 12 I can't even imagine. So unfortunately, I mean kind of as we premised this with I like I don't have a big development to reveal about the strike. We just wanted to check in, like remind folks that this strike is still going on. You've got over a thousand workers out on the line there for again, eight months. There has been a toll taken on the workers by being out on the picket line that long too. There's been some acrimony because a small minority of members, not a lot, but some have chosen to cross the picket line and work despite the fact that the rest of their, uh, you know, supposedly comrades, uh, that you would have thought they would stand by, uh, you know, are still out on the picket line, but they've chosen to go back to work. And some folks who haven't crossed the picket line, you know, the bare minimum you would expect, uh, have also, unfortunately, just for being able to continue the energy of the strike, they've been forced to take other jobs because mm-hmm. just they don't have the income and the strike pay is enough to be able to pay for all of their needs. And unfortunately, because the strike has gone on so long, there's a decent number of those folks that's been reported that may not return to case new Holland because the job that they've switched to may be better. Um, so, uh, that being said, uh, you see Mahdi, who's the, the president of the local in Racine has said that he remains confident that with the resources and solidarity of the UAW behind them, that the case workers will be victorious. And I mean, just to try and make it, you know, realistic, he did say, quote, a strike is not anything pleasant to deal with or go through. However, we will manage and we will get through this. And I did just want to say, like, as an example of that solidarity, there were uh, rallies this weekend in both Burlington and Racine for, like, community support. And there were hundreds of workers and supporters who showed up to both of those. And both places have been raising money. So uh, I'm going to definitely include, uh, at the very least, a link to the local 807 strike mm-hmm. fund. If I can find the one for 180, I will throw that in there as well. And if, yeah, if, if folks want to support uh, workers who have, you know, put it on the line for, Nearly a year. Uh, These are a a good place to throw some donations. Absolutely. Well, moving on from a a strike that is pretty big and very long, let's move on to a strike that's pretty long and very big. We're talking about (laughs) UC workers, uh, academic workers, uh, 36,000 of them, in fact, who are remaining on strike, hitting their fifth week on the picket lines with some major development. So we heard in an interview with Jacobin, workers involved in the strike at UC say that the intransigence shown by the administration has strengthened the resolve of many of their comrades. Morgan 
friend Blaze McPherson, a PhD candidate at UC Davis, said one coworker told her, quote, at the beginning of the strike, I would have been happy settling for a much smaller number. I wasn't aspiring to 54,000. But now, seeing how the UC has treated us, I'm going to ask for the full 54,000 and cola. <laughs> Just Hell like, yeah. I love that, that they're feeling emboldened, but I also love that it's in response to the intransigence of the university because that can often have a demoralizing effect. And what I think that signals is that the in the interior communication of the union is extremely strong. Yeah. Well, and the union itself has resorted to more militant tactics. They've held rallies and sit-ins uh, calling out the faculty who have retaliated against the striking workers to, uh, you know, and putting pressure on them for scabbing uh, or, for, or for trying to get them to scab. Uh, garbage collectors have also stopped collections at some of the campuses in solidarity with the strike. At UC Berkeley, even some of the construction workers refused to cross the picket line uh, for at least a time before being forced back to uh, to work by a court injunction, classic court injunction, you know, mm-hmm. forcing construction workers to cross picket lines. Uh, yeah, this is... This is a good example of why banning sympathy strikes and secondary boycotts was always an anti-labor move. Yeah, well, I mean, props to these construction workers who kept it up until a court told them they couldn't anymore. I mean, that's pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, I mean, workers have continued their direct actions. On Wednesday, December 14th, workers occupied a meeting at uh, the University of California uh, regents at UCLA demanding that they stop trying to break the strike and bargain in good faith. Uh, while outside, Tom Morello, the musician, played for thousands of workers protesting the meeting. While inside, 14 people were arrested by the University of California Police Department for refusing to leave. No cops on campus. That's uh, one of the arrested workers, uh, Adu Vengal, a student researcher at UC San Diego, said, quote, We have been striking for five weeks, and UC's leadership hasn't put acceptable offers on the table. We want to get back to work with dignified wages and working conditions, but we can't do that until regents ensure fair contracts. So we came out to make sure that they do, end quote. Yeah. Um, And so unfortunately, at the same time, there's also been documented cases of increased retaliation as the strike dragged on. One physics professor at UC San Diego essentially fired one of his student researchers for striking by giving them a failing grade for being on strike, which blocked them from continuing their research position in the spring. Um, And so functionally, what that results in is firing the worker for being on strike, which is illegal. So uh, the UAW has filed an unfair labor practice charge for the obvious move of retaliation and is aiming to get that worker reinstated. So, But the biggest news of the week came out on Friday for this strike, where there was an announcement from the bargaining teams of both uh, the two remaining union locals that have been on strike after the uh, postdocs and about a quarter of the total students who started on strike reached an agreement a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, So these two, the two remaining big unions announced that they had reached a tentative agreement with the school. Uh, So the proposed contract would raise the base pay for workers from $24,000 to $34,000 by the end of 2024, with workers in L.A., Berkeley, and San Francisco seeing a higher base pay of $36,500, a $2,500 premium over the rest of the uh, University of California system. The contract 
also adds childcare subsidies of approximately $2,000 per semester, although there's a lot of like means testing on that. And then healthcare coverage for dependents is added sort of. Right. It, it, it's not a universal application. It, you, it's, it, this one is also means tested where you only will get healthcare coverage for your dependents paid for by the University of California system if you make more than the monetary limit to qualify for California's Medicaid program, Medi-Cal. Uh, and and from reading some of the discussions from people online, that is not likely to be a very large group of these well, workers. Especially because you've already told them you're only getting a $10,000 a year raise by right. the end of 2024. So you're, yeah. you're telling them what their wages are going to be and then saying if your wages aren't high enough to qualify, you don't get this benefit. It's, it's, it's casino antics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so in, 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 in announcing this tentative agreement, Raphael, now I apologize, I didn't look this up. I don't know if it's Jamie or Jaime. I'm guessing Jaime. Uh, So uh, Raphael Jaime, a doctoral candidate and president of UAW 2865, told the New York Times that the agreement is, quote, a huge deal and it will go a long way toward addressing the high cost of living near UC campuses, end quote. However, (laughs) and this is the giant asterisk that has been hanging over since I started talking about the TA, This tentative agreement has drawn immediate criticism from sections of the the rank and file at UC. Workers have pointed out that the new base pay agreement is far lower than the original demand of $54,000 as a base pay, and that the new base rate of $34,000 does not kick in for two years. Uh, So that's two more years of workers making well under $34,000, which is still an incredibly low wage that's and that's the yearly equivalent of $17 an hour um workers also pointed out that without a cola in the agreement a cost of living agreement that there's nothing to protect these same workers from rent increases over the subsequent years eating up most of that wage increase right many also criticized the fact that this essentially creates a two-tiered wage system where workers at LA and Berkeley will make $2,500 a year more than workers at campuses in Santa Clara or Santa Barbara, despite the fact that the average rent and cost of living in Santa Clara and Santa Barbara are actually higher than in LA and Berkeley. Pointing this out that because this premium was discussed as like, well, this is because it's so it's more expensive in these cities. And in the case of San Francisco, that's certainly true. But it, this data that, that, that students have released has shown that it's like, well, it's not it's really not just scaling for cost of living. It's more designating L.A., Berkeley, and San Francisco as the so-called flagship mm-hmm. campuses and saying that that's why workers there should get a higher wage. And labor historian, uh, very well-known labor historian, and who is also a professor at UC Santa Barbara, uh, Nelsa Lichtenstein, who or might be Lichtenstein, and again, I apologize for not knowing. I've read a couple of his books, but I haven't actually heard his name said. He said on Twitter that this sort of tiered arrangement, quote, will create resentment and rancor for years if it is allowed to stand, end quote. Yeah, and I mean, that's absolutely true. I'm, you, you really, it's good to acknowledge like uh, different costs of living in different cities, but if, if you're not mapping to that, if it's not pinned to that across the board, then it's like, yeah, there's, there's way too much room there to create, you know, 
divisions between those workers. And so you also heard from uh, some of the rank and file that the addition of dependent healthcare coverage will largely not exist for most workers due to it only applying for workers, as we mentioned, whose income exceeds the threshold to qualify for the Medi-Cal program. And so due to these multiple criticisms of the tentative agreement, a vote no campaign has been launched by rank and file members who feel that the workers' power has only continued to grow and that a better agreement could be reached by extending the strike. So the agreement will now go to the 36,000 members for a ratification vote, during which the strike will continue, which we love to see. Yeah, uh, I think that's really important because Mm -hmm. I've seen significant uh, pushback from people online. Again, you know, I'm on the East coast. I'm not in California. There's 36,000 workers. I may just be seeing a snapshot of a very small portion of them. So I have no idea how representative it is, but with all those asterisks, I've seen a lot of people pointing out a lot of problems with this TA. And and frankly, I, I tend to agree with the folks who argue that the workers have not passed the point of their highest leverage. And that in fact, by staying out longer, by continuing to withhold grades, by, potentially threatening the award of um, grants for, especially for student researchers, where that's really important, by continuing the strike longer, that the workers' leverage will really only increase uh, over if they're able to get through the winter break. Uh, and I, I don't see why they wouldn't be able to. So uh, I tend to be, from what everything I've read about this TA, I tend to be pretty sympathetic to the argument that workers should vote no on this. Uh, but I, I think ultimately, you know, the, the democratic test of how the workers feel about that will be you know, what we see when the workers actually vote over on that. I don't have an exact date for when that will be completed, but it should be over the next week or two. Absolutely. And in our continuing coverage of ongoing strikes, we're going to be going back over to the UK where the holiday strikes and we have, there was a calendar that was going around that was absolutely full of them. And we're going to be kind of touching on some of the rail, air and healthcare strikes that are happening over there over the holiday season. So to begin, the rail workers in the UK have renewed their strike authorization after rejecting the terrible offer by Network Rail that included a two-year raise of 9% that wouldn't even meet this year's inflation and included thousands of job cuts and slashes uh, and slashed maintenance. Uh, 83% of RMT workers voted and 63% of that percent of that group of people voted against the deal and for continued strike action. RMT general secretary Mick Lynch said, quote, the government is refusing to lift a finger to prevent these strikes, and it is clear that they want to make effective strike action illegal in Britain. We will resist that and our members along with we will resist that and our members along with the entire trade union movement will continue their campaign for a square deal with workers, decent pay increases, and good working conditions. End quote. Yeah. And I'm, he's absolutely right. We haven't seen any sort of discussion from the Tories about anything productive. It's only been consistently attacking the workers and talking about ways to try and break the strikes. So the rail workers have now expanded their short-term strikes because, you know, before earlier in the year they'd been doing mostly single-day strikes with the occasional two-day one. Now they're doing primarily two-day strikes and a big four-day long one. So the workers have already struck on the 13th and 14th. They also struck on the 16th and 17th. And then the big one, they will be striking from Christmas Eve through the 27th, which, I mean, 
You want to talk about maximizing your leverage as somebody who works in transit. The four days around Christmas are about as high as that leverage gets. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a classic story when it comes to like, uh, to transportation workers and other sorts of essential, like basically essential workers. I mean, I think that it's pretty often uh, characterized this way in France, where that is exactly when a lot of those unions go on strike because it has the most impact. uh, And people are like, Hey, you need to meet these workers demands because I want to see my family. Yeah, you yeah. got to hit them where they're most vulnerable. Christmas Eve, like Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> That's, That's right. right. <laughs> and, and so there's also, uh, unless you know, there's a big, the the unless the government caves, there are two more two day strikes scheduled for the beginning of next year mm-hmm. on the third and fourth, and then the sixth and seventh as well. And in addition to the forty thousand RMT workers who are striking, the train drivers on the West Coast Main Line, as part of at the Aslef Drivers Union, will also be holding a vote to join the strike as well. After their employer Avanti attempted to make unilateral changes to the drivers' schedules without consulting the unions. And in a statement with one of my favorite quotes recently from a union leader, the the union said, "quote." They will not be bullied by rubbish managers at a rubbish company. <laughs> cool. Hell yeah. Like, I'm That's surprised incredible. they didn't just issue, like, they, they take some union letterhead and write, fuck off, and yeah. just give it to the boss. <laughs> That's right. I mean, that's about that's about as accurate of language as you can spit out without using the fuck word. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Emailing then, I mean, a like, photo of your middle finger to your boss. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, like, the, the, the transit energy doesn't stop there. Holiday travel in, in the country will further be disrupted from December 23rd through the 26th and the 28th through the 31st when 3,000 workers at Passport Control at Heathrow Airport, one of the busiest airports in the world, will go on strike. These workers are demanding raises in line with inflation and guarantees of job security without the cuts that have been proposed by their employer. So as reported by the Trade Union Congress, which is the UK's largest union federation, average worker pay in the UK has actually dropped by 80 pounds a month, a 3% total wage drop over the year rather than increasing, which is the worst rate in 50 years. So it's no wonder we're seeing these workers who, you know, one of their biggest concerns is like, hey, look, my wages aren't not keeping up with this inflation. And we heard from TUC General Secretary Francis O'Grady, who said in a statement, quote, the Tories' failure to get pay rising has left millions of households brutally exposed to the cost of living emergency. It's time to reward work, not wealth. We cannot be a country where NHS and teaching staff have to use food banks while city bankers are given unlimited bonuses. Yeah. And meanwhile, the Tory government Rather than, you know, pressuring businesses to come to deals with workers and be like, hey, maybe we can make compromises here and there and stop having hundreds of thousands of people on strike every week. They've instead made the outrageous move of readying the army to be used as scabs. The government's already announced plans to use military personnel to replace some of the striking passport workers at Heathrow and have proposed using them to replace striking ambulance drivers as well. But one of the things I thought was interesting, you know, reading some of the British press about this, because that's obviously awful, and, mm-hmm. and, and it, it's it's undemocratic, it's anti-labor, it's awful. I mean, it's like, you know, it's a step towards a military dictatorship. But mm-hmm. um, it's even gotten complaints from people very much associated with the military, like Lord Richard Dannett, who is a former chief of the British Army, told The Guardian, quote, 
Soldiers might decide they've had enough of bailing the government out of the muddles it gets itself into. They might think, I joined to be a soldier, not a strike breaker. Wow. Yeah, and that's coming from somebody that you know isn't a radical socialist or anything. He's literally a lord. Yeah, well, it's it's crazy, too, because it's like the Tories have really... Uh, demonstrated that like just because they're evil doesn't mean that they're competent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do feel like those things get conflated sometimes. Right. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, um, well, and at the same time, the strike wave continued to grow with this largest contingent yet as hundreds of thousands of nurses with the Royal, uh, with the Royal College of Nursing launched their first ever nationwide strike on Thursday, December 15th, the, uh, the nurses have seen their wages stagnate over the past decade of Tory governance, meaning that with inflation, their wages have actually gone down, forcing many nurses to rely on food banks, just like was stated previously for the other workers. The Royal College of Nursing is calling for a 19% raise to finally address the years of pay cuts and uh, current uh, cost of living crisis, by the, uh, but the government has called this quote-unquote unrealistic. It's like... Yeah. Unrealistic for what reason? Well, my my thing with that is like, oh, you want a 19% raise? Ugh. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I'm like, what about not giving nurses a raise for a literal decade? Yeah. No raises at all for 10 years. Well, How and- is that not the unreasonable thing? Like, it's not as if inflation froze for nurses right. specifically well, <laughs> somehow. It's also like, uh, let me see your wages. Let me see yeah. the administrative bonuses mm-hmm. that you give out at the end of every year. You know, let me see the numbers on that. I'm sure I can find the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and so Royal College of Nursing General Secretary Pat Cullen told the BBC, quote, we need to stand up for our health service. We need to find a way of addressing those over 7 million people that are still on waiting lists. And how are we going to do that? By making sure that we've got the nurses to look after our patients, not with 50,000 vacant posts and with it increasing day by day, end quote. And I think that points to some really important aspects of Tory intransigence, specifically in the case of the NHS. Because, like, the policy of not providing nurses raises in the NHS is not simply a part of neoliberal austerity programs, which of course it is, it is part of that, but it's specifically targeted here in the same way that we see social services in the United States so commonly stripped of resources Mm -hmm. in order to intentionally degrade their quality of service so that politicians can then point to them and say, see public ownership of whatever the post office, the rail network, whatever you want to say that doesn't work. It's inefficient. We have to privatize it. And Oh, by the way, I know exactly who we should sell it to. And they definitely didn't give me a shitload of campaign donations. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, like, it's, it's a pattern that we see repeatedly whenever a right-wing party wants to privatize a system. They do this. They starve it of resources, and they drive it into the ground. And the Tories have been doing that to the NHS for years, unfortunately, with the assistance of the right-wing Blairites in labor, like Keir Starmer, uh, who have enabled the exact same sort of neoliberal system and not really presented a real, even social democratic alternative. And, and so... The, this strike by the nurses isn't just vital, you know, to give the nurses a, a better, you know, standard of living and actually allow them to pay their bills and not have to use food banks, which is, of course, extremely important in and of itself. But it's really a strike to save the NHS because, yeah. it, it, as they point out, there's 50,000 vacancies 
in the NHS. And it's because of the fact that it's starved of resources. And so it, like these workers are not just fighting for themselves, even though that would be a totally, you know, mm -hmm. laudable course. They are fighting for the entire health system. Yeah. So, and so, so if you live anywhere near where any of these workers are striking, any of these nurses, go and support them because I guarantee you, you don't want an Americanized healthcare system. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> from personal experience. Yeah. You absolutely yeah. do not. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so just just as a one small piece of clarification to note, uh, the nurses' strike is is concentrated in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland because the Scottish nurses, I believe, had previously agreed to a a separate new contract. So the nurses in Scotland were not primarily on strike on the fifteenth, and so the fifteenth was the the big day with hundreds of thousands of nurses uh, nurses on strike. There are a ton of great pictures from the rallies that you can see online, but that is not the end. It's not just the one day strike, you know, because the nurses are saying, you know, like, look. We showed you we're serious. Now you need to negotiate with us. And if you don't, we'll do it again. <laughs> so another potential walkout is planned for the 20th. And if they don't get a response from the government, these are only looking to escalate. And so we're now looking at a strike wave in the UK that has at some point throughout the year had about a million workers on the picket line. And there's been no loss of resolve. There have been several huge contracts, like the workers at uh, the dock workers at uh, Felixstowe. They won really big raises, uh, and and in a few other cir circumstances. So there's, despite the fact that there's complete antipathy from the Tory government, there's been no weakening of the labor movement, and so I only really see this fight continuing into next year. Yeah. Well, yeah. and continuing with rail news and workers wanting to get more militant. There, we have a bit of news out of the Brotherhood of Locomotive uh, Engineers and Trainsmen, right? That's correct. Mm -hmm. No, that's uh, for bacon, le lettuce, egg, and tomato. Correct, <laughs> correct, yeah. Where the union has basically gotten rid of their incumbent president in their election with uh, bringing in a more militant president. Yeah, this is a, a, this is a relatively rare case because... Uh, Despite them, and this is not to say that unions aren't democratic, but there's a lot of unions that don't have strong challengers because there's internal slates that get set up and, you know, you determine who's going to be the most likely candidate to win. And you come to an agreement before you actually have the election. And, and so you end up with, like, an election where you kind of know where it's going to go. And then, of course, there are the unions that have more or less undemocratic provisions that prevent the sort of one-member, one-vote election that we see in the Teamsters or the one that just has been going on, actually still going on in, in the UAW. So this was, came as a really big surprise. Like there was, there were, it was not expected that the president of the BLET, Dennis Pierce would lose his election and, and, and actually be replaced. So, this week, yeah, they were, uh, writing for More Perfect Union, Jonah Furman actually talked to the president-elect, the new president of the BLET, Eddie Hall, who's currently a officer at Local 28 in Tucson, Arizona. And Hall said that part of what you know inspired him to run was that during the negotiations earlier in the year, uh, Dennis Pierce, who the outgoing president, he visited their local to speak with members, and the members in Tucson were not satisfied with the answers. And so they nominated Hall to run against him. And uh, so a lot of this stems from the fact, the, the difficult position and potentially maybe not the most responsive of actions taken by a lot of the rail union leaders, where like, for instance, during these bitter negotiations with the rail carriers, 
uh, Pierce kind of gravitated towards the Biden administration. In an interview, he advocated for members to vote for the tentative agreement that did not include any sick days, saying, quote, contracts between the railroads and their employees have never had sick time. There's a lot of industries that don't have that in our contract, end quote. Oh, man, shut <laughs> up. That's that's like the joke about uh, the trash future does about Britain, where it's like, it's a shit country and it was terrible for me, so it should never get better. <laughs> and- yeah, and so like while a lot of while like the majority of the members of BLET did vote in favor of ratifying the TA, it was an extremely close election and clearly the more engaged parts of the membership were not happy with that outcome mm-hmm. and were not happy that the union leadership did not push harder for a better contract or actually for a strike. And so this this past week we saw the results of that with Eddie Hall taking a 53 to 43 upset victory to replace Dennis Pierce as the leader of the BLET. Hell yeah. yeah. Imagine being such a shitty union president that you go to speak at a local and you bomb so hard they replace you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and there was one little caveat in there in that the election mm-hmm. was called into question because of Hall posting some article to his Facebook, which is technically a breaking of the election rules or something. But uh, in kind of what is a not shitty move, the incumbent then said, uh, no, we're not actually going to redo this election. I'm going to withdraw from the race, basically just leaving Hall to win, even if there is another vote that comes up. Which is an interesting move. You have to wonder if maybe he wasn't sensing that the overall tide was turning and that, you know, um, that he was only going to continue to lose traction in the future. Because imagine redoing the election and losing by a bigger margin after you caught your opponent technically breaking the rule, that would be downright embarrassing. Also, it's such a technicality, like posting mm-hmm. an article on Facebook, that it, to use that as a reason to subvert the democracy is like, this is silly. Yeah, sure. Well, and, and I, he put out a statement when after that happened, and, and he was pretty clear. I, I, I actually thought it was a, a good statement where he came out and said, look, yeah, technically my opponent may have violated the rules of campaigning, but he's just like, this... This is, is not likely to change the outcome. And, and he basically called for unity. He was like, we don't need people in the union attacking each other and forming all these big divisions over an election like this. He's basically just like, look, my opponent clearly got more votes than me. I don't think there's any need to have a acrimonious recount or anything. Basically being like, look, I accept he won. Mm-hmm. So he's going to be the new president. I'm going to step back and let's focus on building the union. And I thought that was a classy move. So like, I just, you know, I think we should acknowledge that because one of the things I think it's always important to remember when we're talking about union elections and not like electoral elections, what we think of as the Democrats and the Republicans in bourgeois the government. elections, well, yes, yeah. bourgeois elections is that even if we have a ton of disagreements with a, a union leadership, even if they're business unionists to the core, mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's still a workers' organization, and we want that organization to survive the election and not split into, like, uh, endlessly bickering factions. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that that's a good—I think that's an encouraging sign, that that, that call for unity there uh, from, from Pierce on going out there. So, I, yeah, I, I think that that's a good move, and I, and I think it's encouraging to see. And so following his win, Hall has— called for union leadership to be more responsive to the members saying, quote, we have a union 
but members are not involved. I'm hoping to get out there and listen to the membership. He was also clear about how members felt about the contract, saying, quote, polls were taken, resulting in over 99% of those that responded instructing our leaders to withdraw from service if an agreement could not be reached on our quality of life issues. However, once all provisions under the Railway Labor Act were exhausted and a legal strike was warranted, our leaders chose to bury their heads in the sand. And so I think that really gets to the heart of the movement that propelled Hall to victory. And now he's saying that he wants to visit and speak with his workers at as many locals around the country as he can to make sure that he's able to understand working conditions in different sites across the country and hear from as many members as possible, which I think is encouraging. Um, and uh, so while the next round of bargaining and the next opportunity for a, a national rail strike won't be until 2025, uh, he's going to need that time to build the level of engaged leadership, uh, to actually build engagement with the rank and file membership, and to build cross-union connections that will be necessary to make an actual strike threat a reality in the next round of these bargaining. I mean, it yeah, sounds like I, a very materialist plan. I like it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I mean, I it's encouraging. I I guess uh, if more workers are engaged, maybe we will see the better possibility of militant strike actions from the membership itself, which is something that yeah. there was a lot of membership not seeing that and wanting it, but also not that wasn't coordinated well enough to actually come to pass. I mean, and who knows? It still technically could, but so far it does not have a lot of leanings in that direction. Right. Yeah. Well, and as long as we are reporting on stories outside the NLRA, let's move from rail to farm. Uh, so Damn, good segue. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, last year we saw workers at Pindar Vineyards in Long Island who formed the first farm workers union in New York history after a long three year battle. But as reported by Amir Hafeji in documented New York, winning a first contract has been just as difficult uh, of a fight. Farm workers are excluded, as we were referring to, from the vast majority of labor rights in the U.S. due to very racist exemptions specifically written to disenfranchise black and Hispanic workers. Despite working 60-plus hour weeks for years, the workers who harvest grapes for the vineyard have been excluded from overtime pay, holiday pay, paid time off, workers' compensation, and many of the other labor rights that non-agricultural workers have. One worker, Marty Zambrano-Diaz, who has worked for the vineyard for over 20 years still only makes $17 an hour. When workers have gone to the bosses for raises, they've been told that if they don't like their wages, they can leave. Diaz told Documented New York that after decades of hard labor, quote, I'm not the same anymore. It takes a toll on your body. My bones and my feet hurt. And $17 an hour after 20 years working somewhere is outrageous anywhere in this country, but especially in New York. Yeah. yeah, and especially in hard farm labor. Mm -hmm. I mean, like this is this is like really, really like hard work, and also like takes mm -hmm. specific skills to know how to do it and not get hurt while doing it. Also, to make sure that you're not damaging any of the fruits. I mean, like these. This is stuff that you actually is that is practiced, and as you do it more, you do get better at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, unlike the way it's always portrayed. It is abs it is absolutely not unskilled labor. This is actually one of the things that I appreciate about like the United Farm Workers uh social media strategy cuz they'll literally just tweet out videos of like hey, this is how the people that harvest your food do their job and I'm watching I'm like I couldn't do that for 1 hour. Yeah. <laughs> Much less 
eight, nine, 10, 12 hours over and over and over again. Like I'm consistently amazed at the level of skill like that these workers develop over the time doing this. And so there was some relief for some of these farm workers back in 2019 after New York passed the Farm Laborers Fair Labor Practices Act, which gave agricultural workers uh, basic rights like overtime, disability pay, paid family leave, unemployment benefits, and most importantly, the right to form a union. And so immediately after that bill passed, the workers at Pindar Vineyards began to, cri- to organize their union. And in May of last year, they voted unanimously to join RWDSU uh, slash UFCW Joint Local 338, forming the first farm workers union in the state since the bill passed. Um, and And the thing, though, that sucks about this, and unfortunately, I think this is the sort of thing that we're going to be seeing a lot of uh, with the resurgence of the labor movement, is that you have the huge difficulty of getting through the election process in this country. And then you have the, the other gigantic mountain, though, that you have to fight to get that first contract. And that's been where these workers have been stuck for the past year. Uh, Noemi Barrera, who's a union rep for Local 338, told Documented, quote, they are not providing fair wages, health insurance, or any sort of unit protection. They are using delaying tactics at this point. It looks like we are going to have to ask a third party, a mediator, to join, end quote. Not a position that any union wants to be in because... Like mediation means that there that someone is gonna pick where everybody draws the line and mm-hmm. sometimes that can put a TA on the table that is not really in the worker's interest as much as it should be. But I do wanna just comment briefly on what this law did and how it doesn't exist in the rest of the country, except for maybe mm-hmm. in California. Um is there yeah. how many other states are there that even have agricultural protections? Not a lot. Not, I believe there are a couple others, but California and New York are the only two that I'm 100% sure of. It's mm-hmm. the vast, vast majority of the country. Agricultural workers still have the same complete lack of rights they have had since the passage of the NLRA in 1935. Again, I want to I repeat that list. Overtime, disability pay, family leave, unemployment benefits, and the right to form a union. Uh, like... Workers just don't have those rights. Mm-hmm. But, uh, have, agricultural workers have gone without those rights for over a century. Since the since well, the mean, beginning of the U.S., the entire existence that, of the U.S. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, workers have picketed the vineyard every weekend for a month, demanding that the vineyard negotiate fairly with workers to reach a fair first contract. Uh, the company has attempted to use tractors to prevent anyone from seeing the picket line and continued to refuse to bargain. The workers say they won't stop fighting until they get their contract, emphasizing that their labor is the only reason the vineyard even exists. Diaz said in another quote, We are the ones that do the work here. We work long days during the winter and summer months. We deserve an we deserve an agreement, and for them to sign this contract. End quote. Yeah. So, I mean, I really wanted to emphasize this story not just for the fact that we wanted to talk about these workers' specific case, which we do, uh, because I'm I'm glad that Documented is doing this coverage. It's it's really good work. but also that this is a battle we're seeing in a lot of places. Like the no contract, no coffee campaign at Starbucks is about essentially the same thing. 
I mean, the, the, how long have the JFK eight workers now, eight months now they've been struggling just to get Amazon to even ex- admit they exist. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is the big hurdle that we're seeing for so many of these, these uh, insurgent unions. And I think that's going to be a big story. And we year. very rarely get to cover agricultural workers, mm-hmm. which is something that I think is we something we really try to do, considering they are consistently some of the most exploited workers in the country. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so speaking of employers refusing to bargain with their workers in good faith and breaking out anti-union tactics from decades, if not centuries ago— mm-hmm. Uh, the just a real quick story about the ongoing bullshit from Apple's anti-union campaign against their workers at their retail stores. So there was a new report that came out from Josh Idelson at Bloomberg last week <laughs> showing that Apple is actually going a little beyond some parts of the, the Littler Mendelssohn-inspired scorched earth campaign that they've been borrowing from Starbucks. And they, they brought out a tactic that I haven't seen used very often uh, in the past, like, 80, 90 years because it's so clearly illegal to most at, people. At least in the United States. Yeah, in the United States. Yeah, it's more common in the rest of the world. Obviously, like, this has been an issue in places like Mexico for a very long time. But um, so on Friday, Friday, December 16th, the CWA filed unfair labor practices against Apple because they attempted to create a company union <laughs> at their Easton Town Center location in Columbus, where the CWA has been attempting to have a union drive. The company also held mandatory captive audience meetings and lied to workers, saying that if they unionized, the company would be unable to negotiate over certain issues. And so just to explain to workers, because people may not know what a company union is, Mm -hmm. because they're not talked about very much because they've been illegal for a very long time. Uh, Like, they were made illegal in the NLRA, again, almost 90 years ago. What a company union is, is it's a fake union. It's, Mm -hmm. It's a, it is an organization that is set up by management. It is run by management. It is dominated by management. But it is claimed to be a workers' organization. They, these sorts of setups masquerade as legitimate unions, but because they are created by and accountable to management, they have no possibility of working in the workers' interests because, again, they're run by the bosses and they have no ability to be democratically accountable to their membership. It's kind of like, what if uh, human resources took place in a group setting? Yes. <laughs> I think that yes. one really good example is when we talked about the uh, the seizure of the factory in Chile in our overtime mm-hmm. series. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. The union at the Yarrow Mill was a company union. It did nothing for the workers. It was completely dominated by the Yarrow family. And it was there to, as a fig leaf, to prevent unionization by being like, no, just go to this. And as you said, it's like HR. It's, it's, it's HR. HR in a group setting, I think, is a very good description of what a company union is. And so at the, at the Apple store in Columbus, Apple managers handed out flyers encouraging the workers to join, quote, a dedicated working group that can be used as a formal means for employees and leaders to provide feedback on both local and retail organization-wide initiatives, policies, and practices, end quote. Oh, uh, man. Which is, a really, which is a really good description of a company union. <laughs> yeah, it's also like a lot of words to get around the fact that you're just saying, like, it does everything a union does, except it doesn't really do them. Like, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, in a statement, Sarah Steffens, who's the secretary-treasurer of the CWA, said, quote, 
Creating a work group controlled by management is undemocratic and a clear attempt at union busting. If management actually cared about workers having a voice on the job, they would direct them to Apple Retail Union slash the CWA, which is run by workers, not bosses, end quote. Yeah, it's yeah. also just so crazy that they think they can get around it by reclassifying it as a work group. So it's like yeah. maybe not illegal. And the, well, the, the the worst part is that might work. Like they might not face legal repercussions because they called it something else. They'll just have to shut it down eventually. Like, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think the ULP will go through because like the NLRA doesn't just say it's like, well, if you have something that's called a company union, that's right. illegal. But if you don't call it that, it's fine. They're, it's pretty it's, clear. It's like it's what a company union line, is. It's the classic line. They rename things and, uh, <laughs> and think that they have changed the essence of the thing itself or whatever. The, the quote is but yeah, yeah, uh the, the angles line yeah the angles that, line, that famous angles line if it walks like a duck <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> but to continue talking about the nlrb we are actually a lot seeing of nlrb news yeah yeah we're seeing a couple changes in the rules uh the nlrb in this particular case has expanded the penalties for illegally firing union organizers on tuesday december 13th the NLRB voted in favor of a rule to help workers who have been illegally fired for union organizing, which has been a welcome change since Starbucks and so many other companies have brazenly broken the law firing workers with basically no consequences. Um, in addition to back pay, the board ruled that companies who punish workers for organizing can now be held liable for their downstream financial impacts, such as health care costs, loss in housing, credit card fees, child care loss, and other expenses as a result of the illegal discipline, which I think is a really good acknowledgement of the material consequences that workers face when union busting happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a really myopic focus on everything just taking place like at the point of employment. And it's mm -hmm. really good to see the, uh, a legal uh, or administrative recognition of all of the downstream effects that interruptions to employment or working conditions can have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is obviously a, a welcome change. Like we've we've talked about the toothlessness of NLRB penalties for breaking labor mm -hmm. law a lot on this show. And this is a good change. I'm very, very glad they're making this change. Board chair uh, Lauren McFerrin said in a statement, quote, employees are not made whole until they are fully compensated for financial harms that they suffered as a result of unlawful conduct, end quote, which is absolutely right. And so the unfortunate thing here is that these costs will be processed the same way as back pay, uh, which means that, They'll have to go through the full ULP process and the company can appeal and the company can make arguments that, oh, hey, no, these costs would have been they would have happened anyway. They had nothing to do with being fired. It's got to go through that whole legal process. And that sucks. But it that process already existed and you already had to go through it to get back pay. So the fact that this also opens the door for more compensation, more fully making workers whole when they're illegally fired is definitely welcome. Yeah, but the, I think that the issue is is that it the board kind of lacks the authority to just straight up enact these punitive damages mm -hmm. and the company, you know, like you said will be able to, you know, make it like draw it out, bring it into the court system. Uh, and you know, that, then it's kind of up to judges in many cases, which yeah. I think that any company with enough money is going to do that with, you know, their union busting, uh, collaborators like, uh, like Littler Mendelssohn 
And yeah. uh, so I, I think that it's really good that this is opening up to give workers more possibility for for being made whole in these situations. But it is also probably putting a lot of the burden of proof on the union and the worker itself, Mm -hmm. which I think it should be the other way around in that the company should have, should be forced to prove that it's not the case if that is, that is the case, but I'm not pretty, I'm pretty sure that it's going to end up putting the burden on the workers and the unions in order to prove that. Yeah. Most of like how I want to couch my like, I guess not criticism, but like wanting to frame this properly is that I don't think we should look at this as like something that's going to make companies change their scorched earth policies. But what it will do is provide much more relief for workers who are victims of illegal firing. And that's very good. And so there's one other change that may be coming from the NLRB, which, which would be also very good, which is, Another change to the so-called joint employer rule, which has kind of ping-ponged back and forth depending on who is in the White House and controls the NLRB. The most recent modification to this rule during the Trump administration, this is a rule, by the way, that governs whether companies can be considered liable for bargaining, specifically in the case of like franchise businesses. So under the Trump administration, the NLRB made it much harder for workers at franchise locations to force the corporate bosses that actually control their stores to be liable to bargain with them if they form a union. Uh, The board has proposed to expand this rule, making it easier for workers to bring the corporations that actually control the franchise to the bargaining table, which has, of course, drawn a ton of protests from business groups and a lot of really shitty reactionary headlines on news sites like Politico (laughs) when I was uh, looking up articles for this change and there was a whole lot of like business groups warn like huge, horrible changes (laughs) if this happens. I'm like, oh, well, damn, maybe this would be a good rule change. If they're getting so <laughs> mad about this, they're already writing all of this like really angry sort of articles. Like, this must be good. And the rule change is being supported by the UE, uh, you know, one of the, the most progressive unions in the country, the United Electrical Workers, who issued a statement in support of the rule change saying, quote, by refusing to recognize the company who is actually calling the shots as a joint employer, the current NLRB rule subjects workers who wish to win justice from that company to the prohibition on secondary boycotts and sympathy strikes. Because of UE's long-standing opposition to the Taft-Hartley Act, which enacted the prohibition on secondary boycotts, and our steadfast support of workers engaged in aggressive struggle against their employers, we support the proposed rule, end quote. So, I mean, these are these are good changes. Uh, they're, they're not... You know, they're not going to revolutionize the process of forming unions, but as far as the capacity for NLRB to provide a little bit of help and to make the process a little bit less shitty, these are good. And so hopefully that joint employer rule does go through that way. Sure. I mean, yeah. like if this if these were patch notes for a game upgrade, you would call these like quality of life improvements. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, Absolutely. we often it, and also, I mean, these legal uh, frameworks do change so often that sometimes, you know, when giving uh, advice to to people trying to form unions, it can be like, yeah, absolutely, union busting is, or I mean, uh, captive audience meeting meetings are illegal, which they have been ruled illegal in some cases, but not in others. And you know, like, so this gives us when we're when they're telling people that that stuff is illegal, uh, makes us right a little bit more often, which I which I appreciate. <laughs> I love being right <laughs> as much of the time as possible, please. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, well, and then the NLRB also cha- had another ruling, which was really important this week, where they ruled that on, on December 15th, that the NCAA's classification as college athletes as student athletes rather than employees is a violation of labor law, a rule that has been a long fucking time coming. Uh, as reported by Josh Idelson of Bloomberg, uh, lawyers have specifically filed suit against the University of Southern California, uh, the Pac-12 conference, and the NCAA itself if the organizations do not settle with the board, it will seek a legal complaint against them, which I yeah. think is pretty great. Well, I mean, this is an issue that we've all been hearing about for our entire lives. Like, this is such a long time coming. You've seen endless stories written for decades about the obvious, enormous exploitation faced by student athletes. And even from people, you know, anecdotally that you may know who otherwise have very, you know, regressive or reactionary politics. Even they will often say, like, they should probably pay college basketball and football players and stuff. So the NCAA and its member schools, especially those in the highest division, have brought in billions of dollars in profits off the labor and likeness of football, basketball, and to a lesser extent, baseball and hockey players. And in return, these workers have received scholarships, which can be revoked at any time for injury and the hope of a tiny chance at being drafted into the pro leagues. This arrangement has been an obvious racket from the get-go, and it's high time that it changed. And, I mean, again, this is one of those things that I think is just broadly popular. Like, if you just took a family feud-style poll, should student-athletes get paid, you would get, like, 75% yes. And, I mean, as somebody who has, you know, been a a, a sports ball fan... Mm -hmm. uh, it's been interesting to watch public opinion shift on this because mm-hmm. it's there has been a a real sea change in public opinion on this largely I think because of the expanding of the media into like the internet and other things allowing people to actually hear from players mm-hmm. and really students oh, this is the thing that's so difficult because like the, the there's so much about even the language of this that makes it easy to buy into the whole, oh, they're not workers, they're student athletes. Like it, but the whole fucking system, I think, the, as you're saying, the vast majority of people, not everybody, there's still plenty of reactionaries who are like, they're getting a free education. What are you talking about? That's compensation, blah, blah, blah. They shouldn't even get that. Game. That's Stalinism. Or yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you still have those, you know, uh, reactionary holdouts, but most people by now have have, have realized that, Hey, you know, a few incredibly rich white men who run the NCAA and these schools, and again, people will point out, oftentimes the highest paid public official in most of the states in the U.S. is that state's most prominent football coach. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those people are making hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions of dollars in the case of somebody like a Nick Saban. Off the backs of the labor the sweat and tears, and sometimes the deaths mm-hmm. of these of young, largely black men who are doing all of the labor. They're the ones putting their bodies on the line. They're the reason anybody watches these games in the first place and the reason all the money comes in, and they're getting paid jack shit. Mm-hmm. It's like, huh, 
what does this arrangement remind me of in American history? Yeah, I mean, I remember the last time we covered this when the, there was just a small change in the rules that allowed the student, at, mm. the at the time, student athletes to receive some gifts like food. Like they were yep. previously not able to even get food, and many of them were very were going hungry or were on the were having the threat of homelessness. Uh, while also making millions and millions of dollars for these private, sometimes private institutions, but also, you know, public institutions. Either way, it's unacceptable that these people who are really the reason that all of this money is coming in should be left with nothing. While, as, like, as Dan pointed out, many of these rich white people are just getting money hand over fist out of this situation. Yeah, well, and I mean, unfortunately, in the United States, even the public institutions are run like private ones. At the mm-hmm. end of the day, they're still basically like sports factories and uh, real estate firms, <laughs> you know? Well, because the thing is, like, the NCAA leagues, specifically football and basketball, mm-hmm. which are by far the two most profitable, they are professional leagues. They are run as professional leagues. The coaches make professional salaries. They have professional-sized stadiums. All of the marketing, everything else about the game is professionalized. They just use this whole amateurism facade as a way to to evade the requirement to actually pay their workers. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. It's it's a scam like so much of the, of America just generally is. And well, so, like, like any work-study program, basically, mm-hmm. where it, except this one is just like orders of magnitude more exploitative because most work-study student-slash-workers don't generate millions of dollars in profits in a year. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, in a statement, Ramogi Huma, who is the director of the National College Players Association, said, quote, gaining employee status and the right to organize is an important part in ending NCAA sports business practices that illegally exploit college athletes' labor. We are working to make sure college athletes are treated fairly in both education and business aspects of college sports, end quote. And so... Unsurprisingly, the uh, the cartel that's making all the money off this, the NCAA, immediately defended itself, vowed to defy the NLRB's ruling that these workers are, in fact, employees. Uh, USC, which was uh, the University of Southern California, which was specifically cited in the ruling, has said that it will make no changes to its policy unless until there has been a full hearing. And... Uh, even, but even like, so William Gould, who's a former chair of the NLRB, told Bloomberg, quote, the subordinate treatment of college players and their exclusion from big business university revenue is a scandal and misapplication of the law, end quote, which is absolutely correct. And it, this, so to, to put this in perspective for folks, like, because I think, you know, when we say millions or billions of dollars, like that's so much money. So per, like uh, data I found on Statista, College sports brought in just under 19 billion with a B dollars in revenue in 2019. Uh, and so again, this, the only reason any of that money comes in is because of the players. Nobody watches March madness because they love coach K <laughs> nobody <laughs> watches the, 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 you know, the, the FCS playoffs because they think that, oh man, what's the front office at Clemson going to do this year? Nobody gives a <laughs> shit about that. That's not why people watch sports. They watch sports because the players do amazing things and they're the ones who should get all the fucking money that's coming in off their labor, that they're risking their health to generate. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, and that's like, actually just money that comes into uh, into the colleges, mate. Is that just money that comes into the colleges? Yeah. Is that not counting licensing that private companies oh. like EA is doing, or no? No, it do- that does include licensing. Because that's sure. the other thing that, 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 that players have been robbed of for so long is being able to profit from their likeness. And there's only been some small mo- movement on that in the last couple of years. Yeah, well, and I mean, something that it for sure doesn't include is all of the secondary industry that is generated oh, yeah. just because of these sports you know groups and and games and everything existing it's like they don't just you know go out and provide their their service of entertainment on the field it's like you know whole industries across cities and in every state in america are are generated that rely on these institutions yeah so i mean this is while this is a great ruling from the nlrb and is an incredibly long time in coming this is super overdue we have to put an asterisk that like this is going to be fought in the courts by a lot of incredibly well-paid lawyers mm-hmm. because like, everyone in the NCAA is going to fight this because it's, it is a threat to their livelihood, which is based entirely off stealing the labor <laughs> of other people. Well, imagine all the wages for all the college athletes and all the teams and all the leagues across the country, and then imagine a team of lawyers who are making that much money. That's what you're yeah. up against. <laughs> yeah, so, so, I mean, it's going to be a long fight, but... You know, in the player side, uh, they're obviously right. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, I mean, that's not certainly no guarantee, especially in the United States so-called justice system. But I, you know, I there has been a huge shift in public opinion on this. So I do think if there was ever going to finally be a crack in the NCAA's armor around their racket, now would be the time. So, so we'll see how this plays out. But uh, this would be a, a, a very, very welcome change mm-hmm. to stop a practice that you know, borders on a form of modern day slavery. Sure. And it would give me something positive to talk to my dad about. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and speaking of long fights, I mean, maybe this one is not Mm, quite as long. I mean, they are just going on a year now. We're going to go back to Starbucks as we have done every week for almost, I, I don't know if we've covered it every week, the whole year, but we've covered it pretty much every week for the whole year. I think it and has been every week, yeah. One of the points that's going to be made in this update is that you should not buy gift cards from Starbucks because it's a giant way that they just make money and don't have to give anything back to the workers. I say don't buy gift cards because they suck. Give people cash. Yeah, like, people like cash. I'm, I'm, I just am against gift cards in general. Don't make me go to the fucking wherever. Like, I don't even, like, if I have to drive, if unless it's around the corner, if I can walk there in five minutes, maybe. If it's a gas card to, to the whatever, you know, I still, even then, it feels so wrong. Don't buy gift cards in general. Well, I, I just remember every time I've ever received a gift card until I was like, you know, over 25 and people started to take me seriously in my family, it always felt like they were saying, here's some money that you can't buy drugs with. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, it's just weed, Grandma. Uh- <laughs> but, but, but yeah, like, a big part of this is like, because obviously, you know, the gift card thing serves as a good form of a boycott. Mm-hmm. But one of the things, though, that, that workers have pointed out about part of why they push for people not to buy the gift cards this year is that a lot of times those gift cards don't even get used. Mm-hmm. Like, so the workers, in pointing out why they don't want people to buy gift cards, have shown that Starbucks, and this is incredible to me, just the scale of this. But I guess it makes sense when you have 9,000 stores across the country. Starbucks last year brought in 
$200 million in unused gift cards. <laughs> like, if you told me that was the total amount they brought in for gift cards, I'd be like, oh, okay, well, they're a big company. That I suppose that sounds about right. But the fact that basically people gave them $200 million and then didn't use it, mm-hmm. that is just such a staggering amount of money. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. Well, it, and that's one person giving another person, supposedly giving someone else money, but that's like... You have to go to a Starbucks to use that. Why would you mm. go to a Starbucks? <laughs> well, I'm sorry, I, mean, I just have a I have an axe to grind. It's it's also <laughs> telling of the way that Starbucks has made themselves like a default institution that people just think like, oh, Starbucks gift card, that's a safe bet, and that's real. I mean, coffee and the th- especially the kind of coffee that Starbucks serves is not what everybody wants, but I think they just kind of have been piggybacking on the idea that, like, you know, a Starbucks gift card is as good as, like, a generic, you know, online marketplace, like a Visa Cash gift card or something. Yeah. So, anyways, don't buy gift cards. But the big Starbucks news this week was on Friday, Starbucks Workers United launched their biggest strike of their movement so far where over 1,500 unionized Starbucks workers at about 100 stores across the country went on strike for three days over the weekend. This strike affected about a third of the total number of unionized stores at the chain across the country. Uh, and, and many stores reported the company brought in scabs and extra managers to try and keep stores open. But in many cases, the picket lines turned so many customers away and got so much community support that those stores were then forced to close. So, I mean, yeah. that's a huge strike. Yeah, that's <laughs> enormous. And and it's really important that, like, you know, whenever they are trying to scab and get in there, that you do go out there and turn customers away. Because those customers have bought their coffee from you every day for however long. They're going to trust what you say outside of the store. Uh, and, and we heard from one of these workers, Colin Pollitt, who's a worker organizer in Oklahoma City, who told in these times, quote, the main reason why we're taking this action is because of unfair labor practices the company is engaging in that the NLRB is investigating. The most recent are the denial of credit card tipping to union stores, hours cut, and the closing of union stores. So it's just like, it's the same kind of extremely targeted anti-union campaign that we've seen from Starbucks. And it's just that these workers are basically saying, like, look, if you continue knew this we're just gonna have to do bigger and bigger actions yeah Yeah. well and i think this is this is the logical way you respond Mm -hmm. to a company refusing to bargain for a year because like obviously you know and it's different like because i don't want to say that you know what the workers in that pinder vineyards have been doing is wrong they're a small unit of Mm -hmm. of only you know a, a couple dozen workers but now that that's one of the things that was so important about Starbucks Workers United building their movement to the size that it is, is that now when Starbucks is like, nope, we're not bargaining, we're not negotiating with you, we're just going to crush your union, you can't do anything about it. Now they have that scale where they can be like, okay, fine, we're going to close 100 stores for the whole weekend. Fuck you. <laughs> like that, that sort of escalating tactics, I think, is, is the sort of thing that we have to use to force these companies to actually – see that their refusal to bargain is going to impact their bottom line and they would be better served by just actually talking to the workers. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, to highlight how shitty Starbucks is, uh, we've got a report condemning Starbucks's scorched earth war against its own workers. 
by, uh, you know, kind of an unlikely source. The Schultz Family Foundation, established by CEO <laughs> Howard Schultz, the, uh, the so company funny. published a study of the 250 largest companies in the country, ranking them on various factors to, related to how the companies treat their workers. Starbucks was ranked in the bottom 20% overall in the food and health in the food and health retail category, and came came second to last, only ahead of McDonald's. Donald's. Wow, what a great twist on the old joke. We've conducted an internal investigation and convicted ourselves of wrongdoing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, uh, it's like, oh, we're doing a report on how companies treat their workers. Oh, who are you with? We're with the Starbucks Foundation. I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is going to be bullshit. And it, the incredibly rare, maybe first time ever, I've seen a case like this where it is a clearly biased source that, like, you would never expect to do a report like this. And then they're like, Oh, yeah, so the people who gave us all the money to do this report, those people are terrible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Starbucks does suck really bad. It is a, it, it's now a, f- a proven fact by Howard Schultz himself. He, <laughs> yeah. he, put it, he put the funds together to say, look at this piece of shit company that I made to drive these workers into the ground. Yeah, I, I, just, I, I just love the idea of somebody from here handing the report to Howard, but like putting tape over the name yeah, Starbucks yeah. in it and then having him read it be like, damn, what is this company that, that you just have as in like generic corporation a, they're doing horrible on all these. These are, they're treating their workers like garbage. They got, they need new leadership and then they take off the labels. <laughs> yes. <of> Starbucks. <laughs> well, like, I just, He's just like, ah, you're fired. <laughs> I just imagine someone uh, piping up in one of those st- stupid Starbucks town hall meetings. They do <laughs> just being like, Howard, I have proof. You're a piece of shit written on your letterhead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean that was that was really great to see um and then we did see and i really appreciate this this was at a a rally for starbucks workers i believe the previous weekend before the double down strike that just happened this weekend where uh starbucks workers actually got support you know kind of tying into our previous story direct from the nfl players association where the nfl pa sent a letter to starbucks calling on them to stop union busting and to bargain with their workers and Starbucks with the level of tact and and ability to communicate that only they bring to the table decided to send a letter back to the NFLPA saying they don't understand collective bargaining. <laughs> Which, <laughs> bold move. <laughs> um, so the head of the NFL Players Association, DeMaurice Smith, then uh, went to a rally. I believe this was in Washington, D.C., because the NFL PA's headquarters are in D.C., um, to support the workers and to call out Starbucks. And, and, and he gave, made a good speech supporting uh, Starbucks, saying, being like, look, we're always going to be there for you. And he basically just called out, I think it was the VP of communications from Starbucks who sent him that. And he's like, look, you ever want to talk collective bargaining, you're welcome to come down to our offices in D.C. anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Which... That was great, and I just I think it was really cool because, like, look the 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 major league players associations, the unions, they do they usually do a pretty good job of representing their members, but in recent history, they haven't been quite as integrated into the broader labor movement. Mm -hmm. Like the NFLPA, uh, only I believe. And, and the MLBPA only recently joined the AFL-CIO. And so there's kind of been this whole thing where, like, they're unionized, but they're just off in their own 
thing. And and in recent years, over the last couple of years, I feel like really since the 2020 uprisings, there has been more moves by the the members of the major league associations to be like, no, we want to be more involved in supporting the rest of the labor movement. And that's really good to see because the platform that the workers in those unions have is enormous and can only be more helpful in boosting the surge in popularity of unions, the labor movement, and people being interested in organizing that we've seen over the last two years. So I think that this sort of a, an alliance sort of, you know, between the NFLPA and Starbucks Workers United, it bodes really well for continuing the momentum that these workers have built into next year. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's good to see people with, you know, a, a platform out there, you know, supporting other workers. Yeah. Um, and our support for you workers, it comes in the form of a meme review. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So the first meme is just a picture of me. Um, <laughs> it's Pengu. Dan, I didn't yeah. know you starred in the seminal children's TV show Pingu. <laughs> 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 so this uh, this meme, it's it just it's got a caption at the top, and it's them. If you're so smart, what's your solution? And then me, and then it's just a picture of of Pingu from beloved TV show Pingu, <laughs> <laughs> holding up a hammer and a sickle in each of his, I guess, wings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the hammer is actually part of the show. Uh, the sickle, I believe, is photoshopped in. It was edited. I in choose by to a believe it was citizen. also in the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's true. We're gonna go out there and edit every single clip of that show so that it permanently yes. includes the sickle. <laughs> newt, newt, comrades. That's right. Uh, and then our next, uh, our next meme is actually just a, a political comic from what artist is this? Uh, Nine millimeter oh. ballpoint. I've seen a, quite a few of these comics. Most of them are pretty good, and uh, it's got like a. a some folks doing a revolution with their flags and their guns stationed outside of a bunker. And there's a voice coming from inside the bunker from the camera, actually. And it says, Mwahaha, you fools, us billionaires can simply wait in our underground luxury bunker until your silly revolution crumbles. What's your plan now, huh? And then the next panel is that same bunker with uh, a door jammed under, <laughs> or a chair jammed under the door so that it can't open. And uh, they've just left. <laughs> Yeah, and the the camera is looking down at the chair, which mm-hmm. is supposed to, I guess, be like a oh no, oh shit, <laughs> <laughs> oh no, they they figured out we provide absolutely nothing to society, and society will in fact be better off without us. Shit. Yeah, well, and also <laughs> like I'd love to see your luxury bunker that you have no people to do work for you in, and it's just a bunch <laughs> of pampered yeah. rich people who suddenly have to do dishes and vacuum and stuff. <laughs> like, would I mean, it would just turn into one of those weird like. Uh, malfunctioned vaults that you run into in the various Fallout mm-hmm. games. Oh, almost certainly. And uh, our next one is kind of a, a vintageized poster of Captain Planet, mm-hmm. uh, which at the top says, remember kids, and then below Captain Planet, where he's kind of pointing and uh, you know giving some advice, says, always turn a blind eye to shoplifters. And uh, That's, right. that's just some good advice. I, you know, every once in a while we bring one of these in here. It's just some, some general advice. Always turn a blind eye to shoplifters. That's Mm -hmm. none of your business. It's not going to affect your paycheck. If anything, confronting a shoplifter is just dangerous. Yeah, I mean, and like, it's a victimless crime. What's because what's, the people who are the victims, I don't care about. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, and also, like, what's the tweet? It's like this holiday season. Remember, if you see someone stealing something, no, you didn't. 
Exactly. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Well, and speaking um, of the holiday season. <laughs> that's right. We, we've got uh, one of those, I'm going to tell my kids this person is this person. Uh, and it's, I'm going to tell my kids this is Santa Claus. And uh, it this is a photo of what what is, who is this? Do we know who the, it's just a man, a, a bearded man with a with an IWW card? But I bet he's like a. Who, did you know exactly who that is? No, is I don't. Pete I was Seeger actually going to <laughs> you. I think that I might be a like, youngish Pete Seeger, if I'm not mistaken. But I don't know. He looks kind of like red green to me, and I know it's not him. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, because I was like, oh, is he like? Is that like a picture of? Like, I don't know. Uh, a, uh, uh, some bearded famous anarchist I'm not aware of. I just liked it because basically it's an it's an older gentleman with a big white beard mm-hmm. holding up the little red song bro- book in front of the IWW logo. And yeah, just going to tell my kids this is Santa Claus. So oh, I just yeah. want to just like, you know, because if we don't know who this is, this person is officially Santa Claus now. That's, that's true. Just, that's right. The, that's the rules. That's how that's it the is. Ru- that's the rules as outlined in everyone's favorite Tim Allen movie, The Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. right. And one of my favorites so, that I saw uh, this this yeah. uh, this week was this one. I, I loved this one. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different memes in this genre, but I this one was at a level of abstraction that I found very funny. So you've got... You got kind of like a, a brownish background with kind of a faded clock in the background. And then it's just New Year's is a conspiracy by big year to sell more years. <laughs> Wake up. And then you've got like a like crossed out New Year's Eve sash. And there's just no more years. This is too many years. Together, we must put an end to the counting of time. <laughs> I kind of right. want to just throw the famous welcome to my meme page closer on this, which is they have played us for fools. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm done. I'm done. Uh, time is just labor discipline. So yeah, uh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> down with clocks. Yeah, t- time was invented to create the, t- the, the punch clock at work. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. With that, we're going to wrap for this episode. I want to thank you all for listening. If you'd like to support our show, you can do so at patreon.com slash workstoppage, where you can get all of our overtime content, all of our shop floor discussions, any of the different things. We just did a movie time episode recently. And if you can't afford to do that, jump in the Discord, message one of the admins. We'd be happy to hook you up with that sort of thing. But we really, really appreciate the support that we do get because we are entirely listener-supported. So it really is important to us. Also, another thing you can do is share some of these episodes with your timeline, with your friends, with your family, and give them some of this really great news that we try to you know, put into a, a digestible amount of time, this one being longer than the other ones. But anyway, uh, follow John on Twitter at FacebookVillain. Follow the pod at WorkStoppagePod. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce listen to red game table and as always labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever solidarity solidarity everybody Back to the-